and welcome to the Migration and Diaspora podcast with me, your host, Loxan Harley. Today, I'm joined by Daniela Viacres to talk about the fascinating topic of diaspora engagement in humanitarianism. Dr. Daniela Viacres specializes in diaspora remittances and civic engagement mechanisms in the context of both international development and humanitarian assistance. Daniela has worked on these topics with governments, international organizations, non-profits and research institutions. She has provided technical assistance on the behalf of the International Organization for Migration on mainstreaming diaspora engagement across multiple sectors, such as climate-induced displacement. And she's also worked with the World Bank to reduce the costs of sending remittances. Throughout her career, Daniela has collaborated extensively with diaspora groups, prioritizing the creation of policies and programs which empower and elevate diaspora voices. And Daniela holds a bachelor's degree from Emory University, a master's degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD from Brown University in the States. I've known Daniela for a few years now, and while I've long known her for her excellent work on migration and development, she is rapidly becoming one of the authorities on this specific topic of diaspora humanitarianism, or how diasporas engage in humanitarian responses. It's a topic that's increasingly been popping up in my work on diaspora engagement, particularly since it was spotlighted at the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit. So in this conversation, where I honestly forgot at times that I was recording a podcast episode and not just having an engaging chat with a good friend, we talk about how diasporas respond to humanitarian crises, how their efforts are supported, coordinated, or perhaps not sufficiently coordinated with the response actions of other humanitarian organizations and the principles that can ensure effective diaspora humanitarian engagement. There's a lot to get through, so without further ado, we hope you enjoy listening. Daniela, I I know you a little bit, and I've been very proud to consider you part of my network and a friend for the last couple of years, and we met a while back in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I I remember at a coffee shop, which has actually recently closed since the pandemic. They're closing in... um... Well, they announced their closure this month, so they're closing now in two weeks. What a bummer. Yeah, that's very sad, but it doesn't spoil a happy memory of meeting you. And at the time, you know, we were, we were able to swap a few tips on consulting and uh, in the migration space. So I found that really helpful. But for those who don't know you, it'd be great if you could uh, introduce yourself and also a little bit about your, your migration story, because I know you have a bit of a migration diaspora story yourself. Sure. So my name is Daniela Villacris, and I have worked on the topics of migration, specifically diaspora and remittances for, I think it might be over, over 10 years now. Um, and within that space, I focused on diaspora engagement and remittances. Uh, and I worked previously, I've worked my full career as a freelance consultant, which is how we met initially. Uh, to sort of swap tips, like you said, but my sort of my academic background, I actually, I started as a undergraduate in literature and journalism, and then decided I wanted to go learn a, a bit more about the Latin American context. Um, so I did an MPhil in Latin American studies. And then that's when I really got introduced into the topic of remittances and diaspora, uh, when I did my initial MPhil research in El Salvador, uh, looking at um, sort of a small town with high migration to the Washington DC area. And that really kicked off my passion and I decided to get a PhD in sociology afterwards. 
uh, where I really delved into the topic of diaspora engagement also in El Salvador. That's where all my field work was. And then since then, I've continued a career uh, on these topics. I uh, work with diverse clients ranging from governments to UN agencies, um, some private sector on better developing diaspora engagement policies. So, and where the emphasis is me, for me has always been sort of looking at for avenues for meaningful engagement for diaspora uh, to sort of elevate their voices and sort of make a difference in, in our transnational communities. Fantastic. And, and also, I mean, what, although you said your name in quite an English anglicized way, I also wanted to ask about your own diaspora background, especially I like to do this with uh, Americans because most Americans do have a pretty fascinating diaspora background. So tell it us is, about it yours. We are a country of, of proud immigrants, but so my, I was born in Washington, DC. I've remained in Washington, DC all these years, aside from travel. Uh, for short-term moves here and there. But both of my parents are from Ecuador and from Quito. Uh, I have a large Ecuadorian family here in the area. I've, my grandma just turned 100 last month. Wow, congratulations. Big, uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> and so, yeah, very much connected to sort of my, very, very much so connected to my migrant roots. Um, um, yeah, and I think that probably inspired my interest in learning more about other immigrant communities and and how they work together and, and that's eventually I mean fundamentally what diaspora do it's immigrant communities coming together to make a difference whether in uh, you know in, in other country other countries of origin or elsewhere but I'm I'm fascinated by those dynamics sort of picking up from my own background. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Daniela. And we actually do have some Ecuadorian listeners uh, to the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, our biggest our biggest um, listening audience is is Americans, of course, and especially from the DC area. I don't know if it's you wow. playing, playing repeat over and over again, but <laughs> but we do have some Ecuadorians, and we do have other Latin Americans as well, Argentinians, um, Colombians. Yeah. So that's good wonderful. To, good to have you on. I think you're the first Latin American person of Latin American origin, at least on the on the show. You ended on quite a, a nice note there about migrant communities coming together as as being, you know, central to the, the field of diaspora engagement. So that provides us with a great segue to talk about the, the topic of the day, which is diaspora engagement in, in humanitarianism. Why, why do you think diaspora engagement for humanitarian assistance has gained greater attention in recent years? It has, in fact, I mean, it is really, it is gaining more and more attention, especially especially now with the COVID uh, pandemic. I think unfortunately we live in a world where we have an increasing number of humanitarian crises, uh, greater magnitude and of greater complexity such as COVID-19. Uh, and so this is the reality that we're living in. And when we are faced with sort of these increasing crises around the globe, traditional humanitarian actors Frankly, they're facing challenges in being able to meet the demand and the needs for different humanitarian services. So this has sort of contributed to a shift in mentality or a recognition that there must be alternative, potentially better ways to do humanitarian aid. And, and so which, which calls for sort of a greater engagement of local partners and new partners. Uh, and back in 2016, during the World Humanitarian Summit, uh, 
this need for greater local engagement was spotlighted uh, was sort of some concrete commitments were made in the pursuit of a more inclusive, a more people-oriented approach to humanitarian aid. And so this sort of one-size-fits-all approach, frankly, isn't, isn't delivering the most e efficient aid. And so that's where diaspora come in. Um, it's against this backdrop of needing uh, new partners, local partners, uh, who could potentially do things better. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the diaspora, I, I think, you know, even though we've just talked about the increasing attention, attention that's been given towards um, diaspora engagement in humanitarianism, so I wouldn't say it's a new thing, right? Diasporas have been engaging in humanitarian responses for, for many years. So, you know, perhaps you could talk us through that current state of the, of the field of diaspora humanitarianism. And also, I think a lot of people listening, and including myself, and, and I guess your background as well, you know, we come from more development-focused backgrounds. So talk us through that state of the field of diaspora humanitarianism, and also talk us through how that compares with diaspora engagement for development as well. Sure, that's a, uh, I would love to. So I also, as you know, I come from a development background. I was primarily a development consultant, and it was really only in the last year and a half or so that I've shifted the focus to humanitarian assistance. So I've had to sort of learn what that all means and then learn, well, where do diaspora fit in? And I think I was really surprised to see that it's quite different. Um, just the architecture of humanitarian assistance alone is very different than the way development works. So that means where diaspora fit and how they best fit also uh, it doesn't look the same as it does on the development side of the house. Nevertheless, I mean, certainly diaspora are key players in both development and in humanitarian assistance. Um, and I, I think what's, well, what's notable about the humanitarian side is that diaspora are there. Diaspora are humanitarian actors that are there prior to the disaster, during the disaster, and after the disaster. I mean, they're not like aid workers who are gonna go in and out once the initial phase of the, of the aid is finished. So that also means that they tend to stay active in the response long after other aid workers have left, for example. So those are some of the realities around which diaspora HA or diaspora humanitarian assistance is working. So then I remember when I started looking into this, I just, I started researching, given my, just my academic nature, started looking into libraries, looking into different books to see what I could dig up. And frankly, I was, I was surprised at really how little research is out there on this topic of diaspora humanitarianism, whether it's academic research or policy research or programming. So that was overwhelming for me, but also sort of intriguing because here is a tremendous opportunity to do something. Um, and this is also very different from the development side where I think we've been able now to sort of get a good baseline of research and start asking a bit more nuanced, more complex questions about different facets of diaspora engagement. Um, but frankly, on the humanitarian side, there's a bit of a vacuum in this space of just a lack of empirical evidence. And I think what I found most sort of surprising, but also frustrating, uh, is just the lack of sort of empirical 
evidence that is out there that sort of presents a big gap for us in order to sort of better understand the space and sort of start thinking about how to work within this space. And so at the most basic level, what I realize is that there's um, just a, a lack of evidence on just what our best practices, something that on the development side, I think that's kind of language we, we would use a lot as, you know, especially as consultants, we would often come up with recommendations or best practices. And so I was used to that kind of lingo and that wasn't there on the humanitarian side. And so, for example, what I mean is, you know, best practices about, well, how do diaspora engage for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief in different geographies? Is there a difference between Latin American contexts versus Asian contexts and so forth? Um, and also what was what I find to be one of the most critical gaps is a lack of evidence on how diaspora engage for different types of crises. And this must be very different. I mean, intuitively, it tells me, you know, how a diaspora can engage for a sudden onset disaster like an earthquake or a hurricane uh, would be very different than what how they can effectively engage for a slow onset, such as a drought. And then even more so for a complex emergency. Uh, I mean, these are all vastly different crises with, which would require vastly different strategies and approaches to engagement. For example, in um, in a more complex crisis, especially a politicized one, uh, there the considerations are, are are vast, and you know, and they and they have to be taken into account, especially when you think about the humanitarian principles or the relationship of the diaspora maybe with the government in the country of origin. Um, so again, these are all sort of the questions that are out there, but there's no evidence to, or to sort of really dig into these things. Um, and the last piece of evidence that I remember thinking was critical and missing in addition to geographies and differences in types of crises was uh, how diaspora potentially respond differently or, or what the best practices are at different like stages of the humanitarian cycle. So do they, are there better best practices for preparedness stage versus response versus recovery phases? Uh, I think that's another critical question and uh, there isn't enough data to answer. So the state of the field in, compar in comparison to development, it's much more limited. Uh, which means that there's much more opportunity to do more. And in the face of a growing number of crises, as I mentioned, and sort of a growing magnitude and scale of these crises around the world, I think it'll be, it'll gain more and more intention, this topic of diaspora humanitarianism. I mean, do you have any thoughts as to why there is such a lack of evidence in this field? I mean, just to also point out for those listening, at least when, I, when I've done a bit of research in the field of diaspora, diaspora engagement and humanitarianism, I came across a few studies. I think IOM did some work a few years back around 2015 sort of time. Uh, and, and also Samuel Hall, a sort of think tank slash consulting firm in, uh, in based in, I think, East Africa in the Middle East has done, has done some, has done a paper on it as well. I can dig them up and put, put some links in the show notes and, and Daniela, please do point out if there are any other studies or or papers you would point to. But yeah, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on why the, the evidence base is, is lacking at the moment. I don't know, I, it's a good question. If there's there's nothing specifically that, I, that sort of jumps out other than just the 
half of the need for the change would have to come from institutional humanitarian actors, the donors, the international NGOs, um, the, the UN architecture. And so you need to have this push for more data also be driven from these actors. And it's not being driven from those actors. Uh, as I said, it wasn't really even until 2016 with the World Humanitarian Summit that sort of this issue of local partners uh, and localization was spotlighted. So that's now four years ago. Um, and I do think in the last four years, it's been growing sort of in attention, the topic. Um, and the, the research also that I have seen on it, um, and I'm sure there's more out there, but what I have read sort of, it, it tends to sort of give you a, a big picture of, you know, how are diaspora engaging? What are they doing to engage? But the nitty gritty, and what I believe at least to be the crux of the, of the issue for right now as a next step in the state of everything, this issue of coordination you know, really integrating diaspora into humanitarian coordination systems. This has not been looked at. And that is also because it requires institutional actors to equally push for this. Um, and they haven't, you know, necessarily been funding research um, to look at these issues of coordination. But I think it's becoming more and more evident that that they that it's necessary it's for diaspora as well as other local partners uh, and new partners and non-traditional partners yeah absolutely uh, i also wonder whether it's whether this lack of evidence space is some has something to do as well with the nature of how diasporas see their their support to their their homelands and i say that because as you know as well i'm working currently with the fijian diaspora in Australia. And I've been very overwhelmed with how, how, how crucial the, uh, the Fijian diaspora organizations Australia's support is to, to Fiji, Fijian communities, especially during, you know, cyclone response. Um, and, you know, a lot of these associations, uh, they, they collect, they collect donations from their members. And a lot of them, you know, their leaders will go actually fly to Fiji and fly to the communities and and hand out supplies, and you know they they wouldn't necessarily call it uh, diaspora engagement in humanitarianism. In fact, a lot of <laughs> a lot of people don't really use the term diaspora, as you as you as you I'm sure you're aware. So I wonder if if that's also part of it. You know, it's just such a second nature for a lot of diasporas to help out when things go awry in their communities of origin, that they're not developing a case study afterwards to, to show different actors. And, um, and yeah, they're not, they're, their actions are also going a bit unrecognized as well. Yes, uh, I think that's a, it's a wonderful example. I mean, that kind of drives it home, but this example of when there's a cyclone in Fiji and you have a you know, a well-meaning, well-resourced, well-organized Fijian community in Australia, in this case, sort of doing clothing drives, doing food drives, medicine drives, to collect these goods and, and money as well, to send home to those affected by whatever natural disaster is at hand. 
that is absolutely humanitarian assistance. And that is absolutely what we mean by diaspora engagement. But those are examples and it's very common. There's a few, a few comments I have about this scenario, for example. Um, those are example where diaspora are acting independently and not coordinated with whatever uh, humanitarian sort of architecture is also at the more traditional formal level managing the, the crisis. Um, so then the issue as well, there's several issues. If diaspora wanted to engage with the formal humanitarian architecture, how could they do that? Where, I mean, so that they're not just independent churches or community groups gathering goods, but how can diaspora link into the formal structure? It doesn't currently exist. Uh, that's what that's what this whole idea of better integrating diaspora in co into coordination comes in. Um, second point, there's in a very it's in a very important caveat, but diaspora might not necessarily want to integrate in, or be better coordinated. Uh, it might just hamper their efforts, add more sort of more layers of bureaucracy, and one of the one of the key advantages and sort of uh, comparative advantages of diaspora for humanitarian assistance is that they have the sort of ability uh, to be flexible and agile and to respond quickly because they're not burdened by sort of these bureaucratic um, hurdles that other larger actors are. Um, and then the third point, which is, is it is worth stressing too, is that when you often you have diaspora a global diaspora, it's not just, it could be anywhere, who are responding to crises by sending uh, in-kind donations. And in fact, one of the key ways in which diaspora engaged for humanitarian assistance is through remittances. So whether monetary contributions or in-kind contributions. Uh, but I think in, when you sort of, one of the challenges that the humanitarian assistance sort of architecture deals with is making sure that these donations are solicited. In other words, that they are not unsolicited donations. So if you have the church around the street organizing a drive for clothing for hurricane victims, for example, you know, who has requested those donations? Is there a distribution network on the ground? Um, because otherwise, once we, you and I, for example, let's say we walk to the church and we drop off our donation, where is that where is that going to end up um and so effective and effective sort of donating and also volunteering has to be in response to an identified need on the ground and one identified by uh, an aid agency working actively on the response um and that's otherwise you, you run the very real risk of having these donations sort of clog up ports or take up space in the warehouse and ultimately not even reach the people who it's intended to reach and also take up time from and resources of staff who are working on the response. So I add that as a caveat because it is really important and I think there's sort of more education is needed around uh, sort of smart and compassionate and effective donations management, um, not just for diaspora, but for sort of the public in general. Uh, but yes, but you know, if if in fact donations are requested, especially medications, then diaspora, you know, are usually they're, they're the first responders. You know, they are usually the ones who are first to send money, first to connect with their family members to make 
sure everyone's okay. And that's a critical role of that diaspora play for humanitarian assistance. Yeah, very, very well said, Daniela. And um, actually, what you made me think of another uh, conversation I've had with uh, a Ministry of Health official. Um, not not going to say which government it is, but uh, this particular official was explaining that the that the diaspora contribute a lot through medical donations in particular, but often it's very misaligned with their needs. I mean, this this was a bit a general generalization on their part, but they said, you know, we do have needs, but but what what is being sent is not what we need. And in addition to that, and then I'll, and I'll come back as well to the, the Fijian example, because it's fresh in my mind. While, while being overwhelmed with the sentiment and the, the willingness on the part of the diaspora to support their communities of origin, I've also had a couple of conversations where people have been saying, oh, our main activity is to load computers and other goods onto a, a, into a container, shipping container, and to ship it off to communities in Fiji. And I've kind of said, have you considered the, you know, have you considered sourcing those, pro I mean, it's all well and good, but have you considered sourcing those same goods from within the country? You know, there are going to be suppliers and supply chains within the country. And we know that donations, while, while most of the time being very well-intentioned, can have detrimental effects. You know, there's this issue of sustainability that, that, um, the part-time uh, diaspora association member may may not be as attuned to. Um, so yeah, I think connecting connecting those good intentions and resources and and all the knowledge that diasporas have and networks that diasporas have to to humanitarian frameworks and systems is is very important. And and I, and I want to come back to that in a moment. But I wanted to just also ask you if you had any other good examples, concrete examples of, of how diasporas engage in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. You know, you mentioned a few, but I think it would be helpful for listeners to, um, to have some, some additional examples to really illustrate what we're talking about here. Sure. Uh, let me, I'll give you some concrete examples, but let me sort of take it one level up first. Um, in, in my thinkings and sort of writings on this, uh, I've come up with what are essentially what I for now have identified as five pillars of diaspora humanitarian engagement. Uh, the first is monetary and in-kind donations. So the remittances, uh, remittances, we know there's plenty of evidence that shows that remittances spike after a disaster and that they're critical lifelines to keep people afloat after a disaster. And then we just talked about in-kind donations. So that's number one. Um, the second way diaspora and this is also, a, these are ways that are unique to diaspora and which, and also that leverage their comparative advantage in comparison to sort of more traditional actors. Uh, the, so the second one would be transnational networks. I mean, th this is a diaspora sort of goldmine, right? I mean, no, they have this very unique access um, and to tap into the to these transnational networks. So this means not only their internal sort of social ties and bonds of trust, but also access to networks of local partners. Um, again, keeping in mind with this push for increased localization and increased uh, 
efforts with local partners on the ground, the shift in the sort of humanitarian mindset, diaspora had access to this, access to this information about local, local networks and local partners. So that's a unique comparative advantage. Um, for example, this might play out in more concrete terms. Uh, there couldn't potentially be situations uh, where traditional aid workers uh, do not have access to certain, certain areas that have, uh, they're either too remote or the conflict is, is too dangerous or they're otherwise closed off. But diaspora vis-a-vis -vis their local networks and their social ties on the ground uh, are able to get information about those areas to aid workers or help in delivering aid in some way uh, through this information. So that's number two, um, transna the transnational networks. The third is what I call contextualized information. Uh, again, this is the, against with the backdrop of this one size fits all idea doesn't work. Uh, what works in a humanitarian system in Ecuador would not work in Mali, for example. We have different contexts, cultural norms, uh, religious norms. And so the diaspora have this specialized contextual knowledge or information um, of, and the languages. Uh, so to be able to help more traditional institutional humanitarian actors better navigate that landscape in order to provide more uh, nimble and effective and impactful aid. Uh, the fourth pillar of diaspora engagement for humanitarian assistance that I see is this transfer of skills and expertise. Uh, so for example, you might have um, volunteering is one way that diaspora uh, will often ask about how they can engage. So through this pillar, you might have medical teams, for example, volunteers of not doctors and nurses who are requested by an aid agency active on the ground, which is a key caveat at all times. So self-deployment is not a good idea, but if you have, you know, a medical team, let's say in Sierra Leone, are asking for a medical team to come in from the UK. Uh, you know, they, that's one way, a very concrete way where you can have sort of a connection um, around the exchange of skills and expertise. I think that's uh, a real example as well, right? This, there's um, a few examples of those. Um, yeah. I, I think Sudan has something right now where they are not deploying, but they're sort of doing consultations of medical teams. Um, and, the and the final and fifth pillar is advocacy. I mean, diaspora uh, have a voice and they have a platform to sort of work towards sort of lobbying for peace, uh, for resolution. This could be a bit difficult too, I should say, if, if the conflict is too politicized and then, um, that then starts to go, the engagement of diaspora in hyper-politicized conflicts goes against humanitarian principles. Um, but there is an avenue for uh, lobbying and for advocacy um, for diaspora to take on. Would you consider sort of peace building as part of that as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And yeah, if, if, I don't know if you have any um, concrete examples that that might go with some of those because I think that's a great framework by the way very elegantly um, uh, defined is that is that copyright Daniela Viacres or 
Can I, I see that? So. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I'm still I'm still tweaking it, but uh, because I've been giving for the last year and a half, I've been giving really sort of dedicated to shifting my focus from development to HA, and so really mulling over at night. You know, well, what, what is really like? What, how <laughs> is it different? Why does it work this way here, but not over there? <laughs> so I, I continuously tweak them, but I've had yeah. some version of these five pillars for for a while. You know, and they're not maybe, I suppose they are a bit different than development. Um, I don't have a corresponding five pillars for the development side of the house. But well, there, there's some overlap, of course, you know, in terms of, you know, remittances, maybe, you know, remittances corresponding with one and, you know, transfer skills and expertise. But yeah, it's, uh, I think you've done well to very yeah. much, yeah, the, that tailored to the humanitarian context. The only other thing, I would like to add, as long as we're talking about um, sort of the, the comparative advantage of diaspora for humanitarian assistance, because this is key, is that diaspora really uniquely positioned also to support disaster risk reduction efforts. And, uh, and this is sort of a key buzzword in the HA space where we, we don't want disasters to happen, obviously, or have humanitarian crises. So we spend a lot of time sort of focusing on what can we do in the preparedness phase uh, to build resilience so that communities um, are better able to withstand a disaster should it occur. Um, and so because, and this also connects to the idea of the humanitarian development nexus, which is another sort of buzzword. Uh, these two, this development world and this humanitarian humanitarian world need to be connected. They're not separate because the more you have resilient structures in place, the more that communities are able to absorb the shock once a crisis does hit. Uh, so, and right now the two need to speak to each other better in other words. So you need to have a bridge connecting the development piece with the humanitarian piece. But because humanitarian actors are often ones that sort of parachute in and out when the crisis, when the acute phase of the crisis is over. Diaspora don't do that, as I mentioned before. Diaspora will stay there long after humanitarian actors leave. They're there before the crisis, during the crisis, and after the crisis. And in this sense, they're able to sort of bridge this humanitarian development nexus. And this is a key feature um, of how they're able to have a sort of unique comparative advantage, you know, in comparison to other more traditional institutional actors. Uh, and also ultimately this sort of focusing on DRR initiatives also just helps build resilience of communities to uh, strengthen and be prepared on their own too. And diaspora have an important link into the resilience building. Very, very good point, uh, Daniela. And just an additional point before we move on to how you know, the actors should be or can engage uh, with diasporas. Um, I, I think we've seen as well that technology has played an important role in in further enabling these diaspora transfers, both, well, both in the development and humanitarian context. And just one example that comes to mind is post-2017 Mogadishu attack in Somalia. I know there's been a few interesting initiatives from the Somali diaspora to support communities back home including there was one called, uh, the, I'm, I'm probably hopelessly uh, pronouncing this because we actually do have some Somali listeners as well. Um, <laughs> there's, there was an initiative called Kawi Awalal, 
which I think translates to help a brother or sister. And it involved, you know, peer-to-peer donations, um, you know, using mobile money uh, back home. And there was also a, a victim support fund as well uh, that, that diasporas could, could give to. So, um, yeah, just a, just a couple of um, initiatives that, that come to mind that might help listeners to, to understand a bit better what we're talking about. Um, Can I add one, yeah, one more point that just came to mind as well? In addition to sort of a shift in mindset, I think just in the general humanitarian world about you know working with more local new partners, I think as part of that, what is also what I also see that is needed for specifically the diaspora engagement piece is a shift from looking at um, only remittances, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a very important way that diaspora contribute, and also you know. That they're one of the first ones to contribute their, you know, or to send before even aid uh, actors are on the ground. But that's another value, I think, of these five pillars is let's not just look at the remittances and the in-kind, but diaspora have a vast array of skills um, and sort of avenues through which they can make an impact on humanitarian assistance. Uh, because so far, I think a lot of the work has focused on remittances. I mean, there's a lot of literature on remittances on the development side, we both know, we're familiar with it. Um, but also, yeah, the, the, a lot of the literature I did find out there was on the sort of spike of remittances after, after disasters. Um, and that's sort of where the conversation around diaspora would often tailor off, you know? So that's why I started asking myself, well, what, is, what else is there, you know, what else is there? What about the advocacy work or what about, why isn't there more literature on like the volunteering piece or the medical teams that go out and sort of really nuancing it and sort of teasing out the mechanisms of it, not just relaying to me the facts that, okay, there are medical teams that go out. No, no, let's talk about it and how to make it work better. And then, and then that led into the next issue of, well, where is the coordination? Like, are these guys, these medical teams, are they just independently going in or are they coordinated with other, other actors? And more importantly, is that coordination systematic in some way? Um, not just one-off you know, partnerships between a, a local, an NGO and a diaspora association. How do we really systematize this idea of, and elevate diaspora voices um, and their comparative advantage at the highest level? Um, so it's not just ad hoc or one-off um, initiatives. Yeah, excellent, excellent point, Daniela. Um, so that moves us on. You know, we already started talking about it. So I, I want to ask you kind of two questions at once. You know, what, what, how are traditional institutional humanitarian actors currently engaging with diasporas? I think you've alluded to that there being a bit of a lack of um, coordination, at least. And what, what should they do, or what are the principles for effective diaspora humanitarian engagement? I think the the point is that diaspora are already engaging with like we've discussed. They're already sending money, sending medical teams, volunteering with or without the support of donors or in other institutional humanitarian actors. Uh, so what what would then what is one to do with that? I mean, I think my argument and where I stand on it is that it is in it behooves the international humanitarian community to work with diaspora. 
up until now, there really hasn't been um, sort of a sy systematic exploration of how to engage diaspora or how to bring diaspora into the fold of uh, humanitarian coordination. Uh, there just simply, I said, there just simply has not been a dedicated focus uh, or dedicated resources to this topic. And I think the, as we're seeing, the time has now come to really start paying more attention to the importance of diaspora and the, their value add and how they can help traditional humanitarian actors do their jobs better. Um, this sort of leads me into another sort of train of thought I have in my mind, but I think that one of the key, one of the really key pieces here in understanding and sort of framing this conversation of coordination and that I also don't see enough of is, this isn't a matter of, oh, how can institutional humanitarian actors help diaspora? This is the wrong way to approach it. I'm clear about this. It is really one of mutual uh, sort of mutual respect and mutual understanding and mutual benefit because traditional humanitarian actors need diaspora just as much, if not more, as diaspora may or may not need traditional humanitarian actors. And th that needs to really be sort of the, what's drilled into the psyche of a humanitarian sort of mindset, uh, because the one size fits all is not working. And so, you know, and so up until now, traditional humanitarian actors have not really paid enough attention, have not systematically uh, thought about the issue of diaspora, let alone sort of looked at how to integrate diaspora into coordination, into aid efforts. So what ends up happening is either they do so at an sort of ad hoc one-off basis, or there's a very limited scope. Um, so and what, then what happens is that diaspora groups end up operating in parallel to humanitarian actors, which then also could potentially create these silos where they don't talk to each other. And maybe then unfortunately you might get ports clogged with unsolicited donations because of a lack of coordination or you have, might have duplication of efforts or some other you know, miscommunication that could have been avoided had the two actors uh, come together. Um, but I think that the, the good news is that the discourse and the mindset around this is changing. It's slow, but it is changing. And there's a greater push among uh, traditional institutional actors and donors to really look at this issue of diaspora engagement. I think this is particularly true for USAID, for the Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. They're currently funding two flagship projects on diaspora humanitarianism. Oh, one of them is the Danish Refugee Council's Diaspora Emergency Action and Coordination Project, it's DEMAC. It's looking specifically at this issue of bringing diaspora actors and institutional humanitarian actors to the table together to talk about where, the, where is the complementarity? How can we work together? How can we work to fill the, you know, the, the different gaps in the way we coordinate so we can start coordinating more? Uh, and this is a distinct shift from 
a previous iteration where the emphasis was a lot on sort of capacity building of diaspora, training of diaspora, which is important, but it's one piece of it. And now uh, Denmark is really looking at both pieces, the two parties that need to be at the table together. So that's one flagship program. Um, and the other one funded by USAID currently is a project by IOM. Uh, the IOM project is looking to create sort of a conceptual framework for engaging diaspora into the UN cluster system. So this is really not precisely looking at how diaspora can come into the fold into the superstructure of humanitarian uh, assistance. And then they will pilot this, uh, um, this sort of conceptual model. I think also um, IOM had done some previous work with the Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance at USAID, specifically around the shelter cluster. Um, and even with the, even through iDiaspora, not funded by USAID, but with iDiaspora, they had had a series of uh, workshops around diaspora humanitarianism with the topic of COVID-19 in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so this is what I mean. You see that these, um, this topic is gaining attention and unfortunately it's always in the face of increasing crises. Uh, another interesting actor who's sort of on the cutting edge of this topic is Shabaka, who is, which also is based in the UK. Yeah. Shabaka has done some really interesting operationally grounded research with the British Red Cross to really start looking at, okay, well, how can we actually do this? What does it actually mean if we were to engage diaspora? Um, like, what are the nuts and bolts of this? Uh, and that kind of thinking and that kind of research is exactly what's needed. So it really takes it a level down and sort of doesn't just paint a picture of what do diaspora do because we already have a sense of that but it's how can we really do this better working with institutional actors uh, so those are some of the some of the programming that exists now and it sort of it's indicative of a change in the landscape um, but these are all very new things yeah thank thank you for that overview daniela and i just also like to underline some of the the great work done by the programs you've just you've just mentioned i mean especially you know danish refugee council they've been doing a lot on this topic uh, for 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 a few years now and you know roberto cancel and a shout out to him and, and the team behind the iDiaspora platform of iom since I, I was also quite lucky to to have participated a little bit in their covid-19 series and found it very very useful and enlightening um and and yeah, of course, I I am the the masters of of mainstreaming uh, migration into things. So that's interesting to see their work to integrate diasporas into the UN cluster system, which I would have thought as well would be quite an important uh, important high level point that would then lead to better integration of diasporas throughout hum the official humanitarian responses. Um, so on that note, I just wanted to also ask whether you had whether you could provide a little bit more of a menu of options on how diasporas might be better integrated into humanitarian frameworks. And I, I, I can recall, uh, I've read about one example in Syria in which Syrian sort of large diaspora organizations were included in some of the humanitarian coordination meetings. So that's kind of one example I, I can think of. And I think there have been some initiatives to 
launch for on the part of donors to launch some kind of co-creation projects where diasporas kind of co-create projects with official or let's say um, international actors uh, to to develop humanitarian response projects. But um, yeah, I don't know if you, you, you had any other examples. Yeah, that's a, it's a really, really good question. And I think that's sort of the million dollar question. Like what, how can we actually do this? Like what would this actually look like when you say coordination? Um, and there are examples, you know, for, like you mentioned this, one thing that I've seen around, for example, is there, there can be sort of task forces that are created, diaspora task forces that are tasked with a specific role during a specific crisis. Um, there was a Syrian diaspora in the UK, Ebola task force. For example, I think yeah. that, I mean, there's a, there's a few of, of these kind of, um, I think like Somalia had one, uh, um, but there's there's a few, right? I mean, there's many actually. Um, or, but then, see the, but then the problem is, again, these things are just sort of one-off pilots and they're not, it's, and this goes back to the issue of, but they're not really scaled up and sort of properly and fully integrated within the architecture. So I suppose the, uh, you could come up with any number of examples and tailor it to the context. Um, uh, you, yeah, you could have a task force, maybe it depends on, you know, maybe you would have sort of targeted communication material and lay in appropriate languages, local languages of uh, for the diaspora and for the, you know, the, the affected communities on the ground. There, there's, there's different little pieces of, of it that could be done and could be tailored and piloted, but that still doesn't get to the bigger question of, well, how do you scale this up and how do we really make it sustainable and systematic across the, across the system? Uh, and I don't, and I don't know, we just don't know enough yet for how to answer that's the latter part of that. Like, how do you make this systematic across the system? I don't know. I'd be very, very curious to see and learn from the IOM project for the, the conceptual model for the, within the UN cluster system. I think that is really cutting edge um, to see what, how that works and especially what kind what comes out of the pilots. Uh, I would be interested to see also, you know, in the recommendations that Shabaka put forward. Um, with the British Red Cross, you know, what happens in the next step? Like, will the British Red Cross uh, be able to implement those? Will they be able to change their aid structures or, you know, the delivery of aid to, to yeah, to make use of those recommendations? I, I don't know. I don't know what's, there's enough, there's too much that is unknown yet on the, on the nuts and bolts. Um, but that's the right question to ask. <laughs> the right question <laughs> well, to ask is what would this look like? And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, let's watch this space. Um, and yeah, so just lastly as well, um, you know, I, hopefully a lot of a lot of people from listening to this podcast will be now very eager to see how they can support and get involved in, in you know, in, in, in enhancing this, strengthening this coordination and um, of diaspora engagement um, in humanitarian assistance. Uh, well, what's, what are some of the obstacles that you, you think that they will face? I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few. Um, and, you know, I, I can also point to some research I came across uh, by Bond UK, 
um, which is a kind of umbrella group uh, for for NGOs in the UK, and they 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 looked at how diaspora diasporas tend to view traditional development actors, which I think is also relevant to the humanitarian context. And that was that while diasporas often have an affinity with some of the miss with some of the missions of of these development organizations, right? Because they also want to help their communities of origin. They also found it difficult to find the interlocutors that they trust. So that's sort of one piece of research I can point to, but you know, I'd like to hear your take on some of, some of the different obstacles that people will face. Sure. Uh, I think in order to understand and maybe sort of think through the obstacles, it also requires sort of stating what are some of the sort of, what I believe at least to be some of the guiding principles of diaspora humanitarian engagement, because the, the obstacles would, would be faced when these guiding principles are not safeguarded. And from my point of view, and I think especially with my sociology background, the, the ultimate guiding principle of diaspora engagement, I think it's whether it's humanitarian or development, is that it is fundamentally rooted in this idea of civic engagement uh, and in participatory mechanisms. So diaspora, if diaspora engagement is done well, it is a process of empowerment where diaspora not only are able to sort of identify their own problems, but then also design their own solutions to those problems. And there's a sense of agency and a sense of ownership in this process. Um, and when understood through this lens, it, again, I think I mentioned it before, but it's really worth stressing is that diaspora are not the beneficiaries if, if they were to be engaged by international institutional actors or donors. Diaspora are not the beneficiaries. They need to be treated as equal partners. Um, and because they have a very real value add and, and very real contributions that will help institutional actors do their job better. It's not the other way around only that somehow diaspora groups need institutional partners. Um, so I think against that backdrop, one of the challenges, it will be for traditional institutional humanitarian actors and for donors to devise mechanisms which facilitate the funding, the direct funding of diaspora. Yes, I think, I mean, they, that's part of the process uh, of really empowering diaspora is that they also need to be able to apply directly for funds. Um, so that's, that's one of the first challenges, which then would also require that a better understanding on both, on both parties' parts. So, you know, a better understanding of, well, from the donor and from the institutional actor perspective, for them to have answers to questions such as, how do diaspora want to engage with us? What do diaspora want from us? Uh, is it that they want help with shipping, with customs, with matchmaking, with additional funding? There, there's just a lack of understanding, I think, about what diaspora want from donors and vice versa. Um, what do, uh, you know, what do the diaspora, I mean, what do the donors 
or and the institutional actors want from diaspora. Uh, you know, what kind of knowledge gaps or information, local knowledge, uh, networks can help institutional humanitarian actors do their job better and how can diaspora fill those gaps? So the really one of the obstacles right now, in other words, is just a lack of sort of a mutual understanding of how to work with one another. Um, but I think that some of the programming that's taking on now is starting to really ask those questions and bring both parties to the table to better understand. Uh, and I get also, I think that just an understanding of, from diaspora of what is their appetite for co more coordination with traditional actors. Um, I said that it can't be assumed that necessarily diaspora would want to engage, maybe Maybe they don't, but maybe they at least should have the option to engage and to coordinate uh, should they want that. Um, yeah, and I think that the only, it's not an obstacle per se, but may, more of a guiding principle that I do think is worth stressing and often in the conversation about diaspora, whether it's development or humanitarian, that I, I'm often unsettled is that it's left out, is that I think effective diaspora engagement on either side of the house really has to, in addition to being rooted in the empowerment and the agency of the diaspora groups, but also in the empowerment and agency of affected communities and sort of accountability to affected communities. So to ensure that you, know, you don't have diaspora creating another parallel structure um, and that in fact, they are, there is not a disconnect between the diaspora's vision for development or humanitarian assistance with that of the affected community, or uh, that there's not a, di a difference in perception or, or sort of a disconnection from the crises, you know, because they've been out of the country. So I think that this idea of, certainly for the development, I would say when we talk about sustainability, which is not really a word we use that much in humanitarian assistance, but for sustainability issues, the proper sort of participation of affected communities um, is key. Uh, and I would think, I think there's a piece of that that also holds true for humanitarian assistance. And yeah, I think that, so not, and to sum up, I think the issue of obstacles, there are more opportunities here than there are obstacles because it's such a vast field that is still very new. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. Um, and the obstacle right now is just a matter of, it can be overcome if you can have both parties come to the table together to start better, better understanding what the other one wants and where the other one's sort of openings are. Because um, then you can start creating bridges. And maybe as a, as a final thought, I mean, for me, the, what I in my own mind think is like the ultimate litmus test, if you will, moving forward is, you know, next time there is an explosion as what happened in Lebanon, where you have a massive diaspora, a well-connected, well-organized, well-resourced diaspora willing to help, wanting to help its people, that the international humanitarian community needs to be better prepared to do something, concretely know what to do, because otherwise it's a tremendous missed opportunity to deliver better humanitarian aid and to reach those who are most in need of assistance. I think that's an excellent note to, to wrap up on, even, even though I'd like to talk about this a lot more. Um, 
you know, thank you so much for your time. Uh, just just uh, for listeners, you know, we've we've talked about a lot of um, different research studies and documents. So I'll try and collate some of them into the show notes and you should be able to find them there. Just now, now I'm talking about about Lebanon. Now we're talking about Lebanon and we've talked about a few studies. I also just, re I just remembered that the EU Global Diaspora Engagement Facility is also doing some sort of study with Shabaka uh, on, the, on the humanitarian responses in Lebanon, Sudan, Zambia, Nicaragua, Nepal, and Ukraine with Shabaka. Uh, so that's, that's one to look out for as well. But uh, Daniela, how can people connect with you if they want to want to hear more about your work? Sure, I would be happy to connect with all the listeners. I'm always happy to talk about diaspora. I think the best way is potentially just uh, shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Uh, Loxan will have a, a link to my profile on LinkedIn um, on his podcast. Fantastic. Okay, Daniela, you've been a, a brilliant guest. I've really enjoyed talking about this. Hopefully this podcast episode is going to go some ways to raising awareness of this important issue, which is one of the, the kind of obstacles we've talked about. And, you know, just thank you so much. I know you're doing a lot of great work on it and, and have a lot of great work to come on it uh, on, on, on this important topic. So best of luck. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out the podcast website at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast. There, you can subscribe to the mailing list or get in touch if you want to be on the podcast. Be sure to follow the podcast via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review if you can. Thanks again and see you next time.